0: Uh, You can tell a lot about a person. I don't know if you've noticed this. You can tell a lot about a person by the way that they talk. Uh, I always enjoy listening to people talk uh, about uh, their spouse. Uh, I don't know if you've ever met with a husband, and you can tell a lot about a guy and how he views his spouse, especially when he talks about his spouse when she is not there. Uh, And you know that uh, some guys will talk a big game, you know, and then all of a sudden his wife comes up behind him, and all of a sudden he cowers, right? And they go, oh, I get it. I, I understand now the interaction of you and your marriage. I get it. Uh, I, I understand some guys can't say enough about their wife when she's not there, and you're like, man, that's a guy who loves his wife. Some guys don't say a word about their wives, and you go, know, maybe there's not much, that's a reflection of their marriage. You can tell a lot about what somebody feels about their job by the way they talk about it. You can tell a lot about how somebody views the government. Wind them up, ask them a question about what they think about the current governmental situation. And you can tell a lot about who they are, how they think, and, and how they're dealing with the current situation. And the Bible is very clear about that. Actually, your mouth is a great revealer of your heart. True? In other words, you can uh, act a certain way with some people, and you can even talk a certain way, but eventually your mouth and what you say will reveal what you really believe about life, what you really believe about God, what you really believe about what you deserve in life, what you believe about pressure and pain, and all those things. And the Bible is very clear. It says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's absolutely a true statement because it's in Scripture. But we're going to take that another step this morning because John and I are starting a series, or John started it last week, on what we learn about prayer from the life teaching and practice of Jesus Christ himself. And so this morning, usually when you hear a prayer series is coming up, again, there's that little seed of conviction already brewing, you know? I always say, like, if you're going to talk about pride, I'm like, all right, you're talking to me, right? And with prayer, it's like, all right, I know I don't pray enough. Let's just get to it. Get to the conclusion. Tell me I don't pray enough. Let's go. Or in a prayer series, it's, it's how do I pray better? How do I do it? Well, this morning, this is not a how-to guide of prayer this morning. What Jesus is going to address in the passage we're going to look at is not a how-to guide. It's not a dummy's guide to prayer this morning. Think of this morning as more of a diagnostic guide that works through prayer in other words what we're going to look at is how the way you pray now some of us would say we don't pray enough that's for another message okay we're not even going to talk about quantity this morning okay breathe a sigh of relief we're going to talk about quality we're going to talk about how you pray how you pray the words you utter in prayer and we're going to make an assumption that there's actually prayers uttered in your life. And how you pray reveals much about your heart and your mind. How you pray reveals much about what you believe about God. How you pray reveals much about how you view yourself. How you pray reveals much about how you view others and the life around you. And so what I want you to do this morning as we look into this passage, I want you to think about, to diagnose your own heart and your mind by looking at the prayers that you utter on a regular, semi-regular, or sparse basis, okay? Can you do that? And I don't know what they are. I can't tell you what the prayers that you utter, I can tell you the prayers I utter, but I want you to think about your own prayers, as we go through this passage. And what we're hoping to accomplish today is Jesus offers two pictures of prayer, two polarizing pictures of prayer from representative people, with one being accepted and the other being rejected. And I would beg to say not just their prayers, but the person themselves. We learn that what God expects from us in terms of attitude, in approaching him so that we too can be justified or accepted by him. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, this is right after the passage that John dealt with last week about the widow who continually and uh, pestered the judge, and God says you should pester me in prayer. And we're gonna to come to a familiar parable that Jesus preached, that Jesus taught. A familiar parable. And I like familiar parables because sometimes they're so common, or we go, yeah, I know that one, but we never really take a take time to look at it. And just to catch you up to speed, here's where Jesus is at, right? Luke is broken down. Why I like the book of Luke, because in Luke nine, verse fifty one just about a third of the way through the book, it says that Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem. And, and the rest of Luke, between Luke 9 and Luke 19, it's this last year of Jesus' life, give or take. And it's, and it's his, his steady, progressive, direct approach to Jerusalem, when he's going to enter the city and offer himself as, his, as the king of the Jews. He's actually going to offer himself to his people, and in so doing, he's going to be rejected and go to the cross. This is in the last year, and, and when we come to Luke 18, we're literally in the last weeks of Jesus' life. And in these last few months and weeks, Jesus is getting more and more direct with his message. His first couple years, Jesus didn't tick off as many people. But you notice that Jesus tended to tick some people off. Well, he's really ticked people off now. People are pretty mad. And and Jesus, in his wisdom and discernment and, 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 and getting everything ready, he is the master at getting people so ticked off at his message that they'll want to put him on a cross. And so he's getting more and more direct. And, and the direct assault is, what is my kingdom about? Or what, is it, what does it take to be a follower of me? He's, he's, he's narrowing the focus down of saying, what does it really mean to follow me? And that's what we have here in this parable. And you, uh, again, know this parable, but, but let me uh, we'll read it and then I'll recap it. How's that? All right. Luke 18, verse 9. Read with me, and we'll read it together. It says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And this is the story, the tale that Jesus told. It says two men went up to the temple to pray. One of these men was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thusly, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Oh, already, really. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, the setting of this story, the setting of this tale, and I love Jesus is the ultimate... A storyteller, and and, the, and and you have to understand. I, I think in this story, for this story to make an impact, we do have to transport our thinking a little bit to the culture that he told it in, because we think of words like temple, Pharisee, tax collector, and there's a little bit of a disconnect. But in, in this setting, this was a very common thing. In other words, when Jesus talked about those things, the people immediately immediately had not only a visual, not only a picture in their mind, but an emotional response at the same time. You understand that? In other words, right away, they're already drawing lines in their mind. and he sets this story in the temple. Now, the temple was not only the place of worship. I mean, it's not—you can't even just think church— It's not a building like a church building. This place was not only the center of worship, but it was the center of social gathering. It was a means of identity for the Jewish people. It was right by the temple where the king of Israel would reign in the united monarchy. I mean, this had significance that was deep in a Jewish mind. And so when he says temple, this was, this was a place they would visit often. This was a, a destination point every year. And so this was, this was right away identified with the people. And then he talks about two people that went to prayer. Now, I want you to know that he's not necessarily picking on the Pharisees specifically here. Now, there are times that Jesus picks on the Pharisees. Okay, But right now, what he's doing is he's, he's picking two polarizing, representative type people to to get his point and principle across, okay? So he picks a Pharisee, and he picks a tax collector. Now, because if if you've ever had a, how many of you have ever done a flannel graph story in your life? Ever heard a flannel graph story? Come on. Those of us who have, and I guess they're coming back, retro, okay? Ooh, we see it all comes back around. Uh, But but we, we, if you've been in church any length of time, okay, if you think Pharisee, you're like, oh man, those are scummy people. But you understand when, when Jesus said Pharisee to his audience, that wasn't a scummy type person. When you think Pharisee, or when the Jewish mind thought Pharisee, think three words, three words. The first is law. Okay? The first is law. The Pharisees were experts in the law. The law was given to the Israelites in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, and so they were the experts. They knew the law backwards and forwards. They practiced the law perfectly in their minds, perfectly, and even built hedges around the law to make sure that they didn't even violate, get close to violating the law. They were that good. So they kept the law. The second L word you have to remember about a Pharisee, it was not only law, it was leader. These were leaders. These were the leaders of the synagogues. Synagogues were closer to our churches today. There were Jewish people went every week to hear the, the law spoken, they'd hear a message, they'd sing, they'd see each other, and the Pharisees were the leaders of the synagogue. They were respected by the people because the third L word that you think of when you think Pharisee or the people would think about is loyalty. Pharisees were Jews of Jews. They were were loyal to the people. They were loyal to a fault. In other words, their whole agenda as a Pharisee was to keep the law purely and holy, so that so that someday when Messiah, their Messiah they're waiting for, would come back, they'd find people ready for him. They were were loyal to the Jewish people. See, a Pharisee was was somebody you wanted your son to become and your daughter to meet and marry, right? these These were the cream of the crop. And so when Jesus says Pharisee, the people go, got it, got it, Pharisee, the best we have the best we have, including, and Jesus, you remember, said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, they were known as righteous people. So Jesus sets him on one polarizing point. Now, the tax collector, okay? And and I I don't even know an equivalent today. I was trying to think of an equivalent, I'll ask you in a second, of a tax collector. But when you think tax collector, it's not only just thinking IRS, now, I say those three letters, and you're like, ooh, I have feelings, okay? Now, it's not just IRS, okay? It's, it's in this system that the, the Jews were living in right now. Here was a the system. They had been conquered by Rome. Rome had set up these governors. They had set up this institution around the people that they were yielded to, and in, including taxation. And so Rome would take taxes from the Jewish people. They didn't like that. And it wasn't like representation and taxation, okay? This was like imposed taxation. The tax collectors, listen to this, were Jewish people working for the Roman government, extracting not just the fair amount from Rome, but more than what Rome would want, and they would, they would steal from the people. They were, they were as disloyal, listen, and as scummy as it came the people disdained the tax collectors because they were, they were traitors. When you think tax collector, think swindler, you think thief, and you think traitor. And I was trying to think of an equivalent today. What would be an equivalent to the, today in our society? Anyone? What would be an equivalent today? Politician? Oh, see? Okay, some politicians... Did I hear pastor? No, I didn't hear pastor. Okay, no, I I just don't think there is one because it's it's somebody who should be loyal to the people, and we're totally disloyal. And so these are the polarizing picture. This is the polarizing picture that Jesus paints. And just like Jesus is the master at, if you if you know the parables of Luke, Jesus does this all the time, where you think there's going to be a, the outcome is going to be this, and Jesus says, nope, it's exactly opposite of what you think. But, but as the hearers are hearing this, they're saying, okay, I get it. The good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus. And what are you going to do? Tell me how bad this tax collector is going to be. All right, let me hear it. Scummy, traitorous, thieving, wretch. What's he going to get in the end? All right, this is going to be a good story. And so Jesus tells the story, and the polarization is he teaches us four things, four things about self-trust, and pride. He tells us four things about self-trust and pride from the life of the Pharisee, and four marks of faith-driven humility from the tax collector in this story. Four marks of each. The first mark from the Pharisee, we'll start with the Pharisee and and look at his life. The first mark is this. Self-trust and pride exalts self rather than God. Self-trust, self-righteousness, self-trust and pride exalts self rather than God. So here's the picture that Jesus paints. It's this Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee would have been done up in a, in a flowing robe. He might have had these things called phylacteries on his, on his forehead and, and wrapped around his arm. He had long tassels. In other word, words, when the Pharisee walked in the room, you knew who he was. And the picture is this. The Pharisee walks into the temple. There was two times a day where public prayer would take place, or formal prayer, although prayer went on all through the day in the temple. But he walked in. And and as he walks in, it says he starts to pray. He's standing, and he's praying. Now, that wasn't necessarily so bad, because people do stand and pray. Even today, by the Western Wall, you'll see people pray by the Western Wall today. But, but you get the sense of what Jesus is saying, is that this man came in, and he wanted to be seen. He wanted to be seen, and he wanted to be heard in his prayers. And there's an interesting translation here. Because in the English Standard Version, it says that he prayed by himself, and it very easily could be uh, translated that he was praying to himself. Now, whether or not, however you translate that, the idea is this, that he came in, and he came in in front of where everyone could see, and when he was praying, he was exalting himself. He wanted to be seen, he wanted to be heard, he wanted people to know how great not his God was, but how great he was. And, and I would venture to say that his prayers bounced. His prayers bounced. They didn't get any higher than the ceiling. They didn't get any higher than his own head. Because he got an answer to his prayer from the one he was praying to, he was praying to himself. And self-trust, self-righteousness, and pride looks to exalt self more than God. And, And my question is, how many of our prayers bounce? How many times when you're praying in public, are you praying for everyone in the room to hear you pray, but not focusing on God at all? How many times are your prayers simply focused on a better life for you without ever taking into account glorifying and honoring God? How many of your prayers bounce? And when our prayers bounce, it reveals in us that we're trusting ourselves and taking pride in ourselves and not God. Second thing, second thing, the mark of self-trust and pride is it feigns thankfulness to God. It fakes thankfulness. So you you read this prayer, and you're like, okay, he's on the right track. God, I thank you. Good, good start. Okay, God, I I thank you. We should thank God, right? And even in the Old Testament, Psalm 17, Psalm 26, Psalm 30, there's countless psalms that have this formula where it's, God, I thank you, and God, I commit to you. God, I I thank you, and and I'm committing these things to you. And so was he following a a psalm-ic psalmic? bus psalmic? A formula found in psalms? Was he following that formula or was he simply looking to exalt himself? He was faking thankfulness because right away he moved away from God onto himself. In other words, God seemed like he was the subject of his prayer, but God quickly became just an indirect object. He was the focus, he was the center of his prayer. And, and and find that right in any of our prayers, do we tend to thank God for what we've done? Thank you, God, for how you've made me. Thank you, God, for my situation. Thank you, God, for me. For I. For me. For my. For I without saying, God, let me reflect back. The only reason I'm obeying, the only reason why I'm doing anything, the only reason why I'm thankful for the things that you've given me is because it reflects back your praise and your loving kindness and your glory, and that's a good thing, and that's, that's what I want to be seen. And any other kind of thanks is just feigning thankfulness to God. See, self-trust and pride fakes thankfulness. Pride knows enough to say, I need to be thankful, but not to the point where it's truly directed toward God. Third, self-trust and pride compares itself to others for righteousness. Okay? This is a big one. Self-trust, self-righteousness, pride compares yourself to others for your righteousness. This this man says, "God, man, I am so thankful to you. You did a good job. Well done." Because you didn't make me, and I, and, and, no, actually, he didn't even say that. Because I am not like other men. I am not like other men. Come on, look at other people. They don't take life as seriously as I do. They don't take the law as seriously as I do. They don't take uh, uh, the focus on the temple like you do, like I do. I'm not like other men. They're chumps. Other men are, are flaky. Look at me compared to other men. Look at me compared to extortioners. Those who are greedy and, and, and go after people and, and, and get ill-gotten gain. Look at all these people who are simply out to make a buck and make money. And a lot of those were the, the Sadducees that they're pointing out. The Sadducees were, were they took money from the temple. I, I'm not like these people. I'm not an, an adulterer. Those who have violated or, or left their wife or left their God and pursued other lovers. I'm not like them, and I'm definitely not like, I forgot the third one. I'm not a, a uh, what's the third one? Unjust. I'm not unjust. I'm righteous. And, and these people, look around, God. Look at all these people. Look at how I've built hedges around the law. Look how I have kept the law. Look how good I've done. You see these people? They don't even measure up close to my righteousness. Thank you for making me so good. And and it's a dangerous game when we start looking at our righteousness compared to other people. And we've said this before, that the easiest way to feel better about yourself sometimes is to look down or thumb your nose at somebody else man did you hear what they did man did you hear their marriage break apart man god thank you for my marriage right don't we do that man did you hear that guy he totally blew it thank you god that i didn't don't we do that? And, and we play this game that says, I feel better about myself. I feel more righteous. I feel like God should love me, accept me, and be glad I'm on his team when I compare myself to other people. And are there, are there always going to be other people who do things, quote unquote, worse than you? Yes. That's why I hang out with some of you. Okay? <laughs> Makes me feel really good. You know who you are. But but what a dangerous game because God says don't compare yourself to others' righteousness. Compare yourself to my righteousness. And when you compare yourself to my righteousness, you never, ready? You never measure up. And just think about this. Self-righteousness in comparison always leads to contempt for other people. It's so easy to look down on other people because it makes us feel so good especially when that person chooses to live life a little differently than us. Man, I've chosen, I never go see that. I never engage in that activity, and they do. Wow. Wow, look how good I am, and I can't believe you. It leads to contempt. Instead of brokenness of our own heart and brokenness for that person, See, the Pharisee should have been the one who was broken for the tax collector. Instead, he looked with contempt at him. He looked at contempt with, onto extortioners and unjust and other men. Self-righteousness compares our righteousness to other people. And the last one is self-trust and pride points to works for justification, okay? Looks to works your own works for justification. Now, this Pharisee would go and he would pray. That was obvious. He was doing that. He also says, I fast twice a week. Now, according to the law in Leviticus, it says you need to fast once a year. Oh, once a year, God? You want once a year? I'm going to give you twice a week. Huh? Huh? Oh, and you want me to tithe on, on, my, on my income or tithe on these things? I'm going to tithe everything. I'm going to tithe everything. The things I've earned, the things I've been given, the things I eat, the things in my yard, the things in my car. I don't know how you give a tenth of your car, but you, you, I'm going to tithe everything. I'm going to go above and beyond because that's how good I am. And we would say, well, are those inherently wrong things to do that this man did? Is it wrong to pray? No. Wrong to give. Wrong to fast. No, no, no. But this man, very subtly, and maybe not so subtly, would point to those things of why God would accept him at all. Listen, listen to that. He subtly looked at the things that he did as a reason, as the means by which God would love him, God would forgive him, that God would accept him, that God would listen to him, that God would accept his praise. And we're going to talk about the tax collector now, but listen, listen, in this room today, you and I are closer, more often than not, to the Pharisee than to the tax collector and I'm going to lump myself right in with you. Okay. Now, the tax collector. We'll come back to that, but the tax collector. Here's, here's the tax collector, okay? And it, it's a little bit, uh, I want to explain some of these parts because it, it seems like, well, did this guy not understand grace or the gospel? But here's the marks of faith and humility from the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. The first mark of faith and humility is it takes a proper view of self. A proper view of self. The tax collector did not go. Now, he wasn't welcome in the, in the main parts of the temple courtyard to pray because he was a scummy guy. But you know about the tax collector? He knew he was a scummy guy. He wasn't trying to say, no, 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 guys. <laughs> I'm like you. <laughs> I, I love Jesus. I love God. (laughs) I keep the law. No, he knew he was scum. And in so doing, instead of being out in front and saying, listen to my prayer, the tax collector was off in a corner by himself. He was off to where no one can see him. And, And the Pharisee compared him. He goes, look at this tax collector over here. And Jesus says, yes, look at this tax collector over here. Because not only did he have a proper view of himself, he compared himself to god 's holiness he compared himself to god 's holiness, and how do we know that He was off by himself and he was beating his chest. He was beating his chest now, let me clarify that. I believe he was beating his chest because he knew without a shadow of a doubt who he was compared to god 's holiness. It was a recognition. Haven't you ever felt that way sometimes, going, I, I look at my own unworthiness, I look at my own depravity, I look at my own sin, and, I, and I, when I look inside truly in my alone times, what I find is ugly. And often what I find is worse than actually what I thought. And so sometimes it's like, oh, I am, I am such a depraved man. And I believe that, that that was the response of this tax collector. He was in the corner being in his chest, going, I know, God, I recognize, I recognize my own depravity, my own scumminess, my own sinfulness. And it wasn't, it wasn't that he was standing in the corner going, I feel so bad, I'm going to cut myself. I feel so bad that give me a, give me a, a whip, and let me, let me whip myself, because I feel so bad. Ugh, I got to feel worse. That is not the gospel, That is still self-righteousness. That is still self-trust. That is still pride. That says, if I, that is still making yourself the object of your own righteousness, saying, if I feel bad enough, then I could be accepted. It wasn't that. It was a recognition of his own depravity, of his own sinfulness. That led to the third thing. It left uh, the marks of faith and humility. It left It is left to simply cry for mercy. Simply left to cry for mercy. When you come to a point where you realize you have nothing good in and of yourself to offer to God, nothing good that would make him accept you, all you're left with is to cry for mercy. Mercy is asking God, God, you are absolutely justified, right, holy. It's totally consistent if if you wiped me out right now because of my sin. You are. You would be right, you would be fair if you, if you poured out your wrath on me right now because I deserved it. All I can do is bank on your mercy, meaning don't give me what I deserve. That's mercy, not getting something that I deserve. And this man is in the corner and he says, I recognize who the, who the subject of sin is and it's me. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. And, and, and there, is a, there is an article here, and, and in the Greek language, every article is not, not translated with a the before it, but you could translate it, I am the sinner. I, I am the, I've identified myself as the sinner here. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm not the way I am because my parents raised me a certain way because I found myself in hard circumstances, that I was swindled, that I needed the money, that's why I worked for Rome, that I was put in a raw raw deal. Nope. Nope. I'm a sinner. And the sinner's cry is a cry of mercy. God, I need mercy. And what that implies in the text, what that implies throughout Scripture is that it, uh, uh, the mark of faith and humility, it looks for a worthy sacrifice for justification, for freedom, for acceptance of God, for God to declare you righteous. It looks for a worthy sacrifice. That was the whole system in the Old Testament, right? People would sin, would break the law, there'd have to be a sacrifice, something that took the place so that God, having to be satisfied, had to have his wrath poured out for sin, had to, still does, God cannot just forgive and say, don't worry about it. If he did that, he'd be unjust. If he did that, he wouldn't be glorious. And so in the Old Testament, you had a sacrifice, a lamb that would take your place, that you would lean on, and as you slit the neck and the throat of that lamb, your weight would go on that lamb, and your sins would be poured out on that lamb. And Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice once and for all for our sins. Jesus is telling a story because he's pointing to himself as he's going to the cross saying, I am that lamb. I am, I am the sacrifice that can bring and fulfill mercy to people. Now, that's the story. And here is the, here is the twist that Jesus puts on it. Because in the story, you would think, man, the Pharisee's the good guy, the tax collector's the bad guy. What are you going to do to the tax collector, Jesus? And Jesus said this, one went home justified One went home accepted. One went home heard. One went home free from his sin. The other did not, and it wasn't what the people thought. Jesus turned it on its head. And so what are the implications on prayer and righteousness for us? What are the implications of the story? Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this man, the tax collector, the scum, the one who everyone thumbed their nose at, the one who people looked down on, the one who was a traitor and a thief, Went home justified, went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. We have to get this last part. This is hugely important for us. If you don't get this, you don't get the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. Real quickly, first, we are only justified by grace through the blood of Christ, which we believe which we receive by faith alone. Wayne, go ahead and put up Romans three twenty-one to 25. Being justified means that one is put into a right relationship with God. He is pronounced righteous and is set free from sin. It is a legal act of God that thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us, and he declares us to be righteous in his sight. He declares us righteous by faith. That is it. By faith alone, we are justified. In other words, anything that you try to do to wash yourself, to clean yourself up, anything you're pointing to in your life that says, God, you accept me because I did this, is nullified because justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ as a sacrifice on the cross. And we remember that what God did to Jesus Christ on the cross wasn't just saying, oh, you're forgiven, that's great. What he did is he bore Christ, bore the wrath of the Father on the cross. In other words, God says, I need my wrath satisfied and so I'm going to pour it out on my son because he was absolutely spotless and blameless and so that what I accept you on the basis of is his righteousness not our own I accept you into heaven why because Christ is righteous because with Christ you are washed whiter than snow with Christ, all the things that you've done, good, bad, ugly, all of those things are the same. They need to be washed by Christ alone. That's it. Why are you accepted into heaven? I went to church my whole life. I was a really good person. I, I, I went to a Bible study. I served. I, was, I helped the poor. I, I gave to, to missions. I went on a mission trip. I, I was a missionary. God, accept me. No, none of those things make us acceptable except for Christ's righteousness alone that we believe and trust by faith. Second, we never boast in our good works, but humbly walk in them. Romans 3.27 says, because we, we accept these things by faith, then what becomes a boasting? It's excluded. What, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, let me clarify that. In other words, it's faith alone that saves you, faith alone that redeems you. It's, it's Christ's righteousness given to us that God declares us righteous because of his, his righteousness. And you think, wow, that's so simple. Hold on. Wait a second. You mean the tax collector who lived a scummy life uttered eight words in English and that's it? That almost doesn't seem fair and yet, Dr. Luke, what he does in the next passages, he talks about the rich young ruler. You remember that? Right after this, it's the rich young ruler who wanted, who was a good man, kept the law, and he goes, I'll just add you, Jesus. You're good. You're offering something new. I'll take that too. And, God, and Jesus says, choose, buddy. I was going to say baby. I don't think Jesus said, choose, buddy. Choose me or choose your wealth. I choose my wealth. then he goes on and he talks about Zacchaeus, who happened to be... You remember this story? We little man, we little man was he, climbed up in a sycamore tree. So I wonder, how do do we come out normal at all, singing all those songs? Climbed up in a sycamore tree. Okay, remember what he was? Who was Zacchaeus? What, What profession? Oh, kind of interesting that Dr. Luke puts a tax collector's response to the gospel. And what was the tax collector Zacchaeus' response to the gospel? What did he do? He went and... Paid back fourfold, right? Is that right? Fourfold? Fortyfold? Blast. I should have looked it up. Okay? A lot. Okay? He went back. and In other words, his faith produced works. His faith produced fruit of righteousness. That's that's the point that Luke is making in this progression. And so we don't boast in our works. Works are just the natural flow of faith in Christ's righteousness being imputed or given to us. Okay? Third thing. Third thing. We Listen to this. Ready? Okay. We are ready. Listen. If you haven't listened till now, shame on you, okay? But listen now, okay? We are never good enough to operate outside of His mercy in the gospel. We are never good enough to operate outside of Christ's mercy in the gospel. Never good enough. Now, all of us have this slow continental drift in our life, okay? If, if we're not walking in the Spirit, as we kind of just walk along life, some of us drift towards certain things. Some of us drift toward bad thinking. Some of us drift toward bad living. But we all have this kind of, kind of drift if we're not careful. My drift is toward legalism and living like this Pharisee. If, you're, if you've been in church and you've been saved for any amount of time, that's probably your drift too. Because somehow we always want to do something. We want to look at our performance as a reason why God should accept us, love us. You know, you're, you're more accepted because of our works. We, we tend to go there because we can look at that and say, God, I look it. We all drift toward there. And instead of all going back to the fact that we are, in compare to God's holiness and his glory, we always fall short. But that doesn't leave us in the doldrums because it exalts Christ Jesus. And that I am always in need of doing works through faith. I am always in need of his grace in all of life. By his grace, I am what I am. And I'm always in need of the Holy Spirit to guide me in those things. And without faith, grace, and the Holy Spirit, all those things are just, just works that are worthless. It's like, it's like when my daughters, right, give me, a, give me a picture. Here, Daddy, here's a picture. They're giving that in faith. They're saying, Dad, I love you, and, and, I, and I want you to be pleased and happy, and, and here's a picture. And I don't look at that picture. I go, man, that is a fine, fine piece of art. It's not. It's terrible, okay? It's not in the lines at all. It doesn't even look what they say. But, but why am I pleased? Because it was given in faith. That's God with us. He doesn't, and and I don't go, man, I really have a hankering for a nice befuddled picture of a flower with a sticker on it. Man, that's what I need. Girls, oh yes, I'm fulfilled. No, I don't need it. I have stuff on my desk I don't need that are given to my girls in faith that daddy be pleased. I don't need it. Does God need your works? Does God need you to say, look, I tithe, I pray, I fast, Oh, be, all those things are these pictures. He doesn't need it. He wants you. He wants you to believe in him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to believe his promises and live according to those things. And then he goes, ah, that's what I want. That's what I want. A mature Christian, listen to this, a mature Christian is not one that simply uh, is simply living in external perfectionism. Okay, a mature Christian isn't somebody who go, Man, that guy never sins. I never see it. Always pretty good. That's not a mature Christian. A mature Christian is one who recognizes the inability to do so apart from Christ, recognizing the sinful nature of the flesh and the gift of grace that allows us to pursue God and holiness. That's a mature Christian a mature Christian will obey, a mature Christian will be holy, a mature Christian will do those things, but all by the grace of God. (laughs) All with the understanding, it's not that that makes me acceptable. I just, I live by the grace of God every day. Last thing, last thing, our prayer should reflect this understanding of personal brokenness and desire for others to break before God. Let me, just, let me just sum all this up. Let me just close by this. How do you pray? What do you pray? Does your prayer every day of your life reflect this truth about justification, Christ's righteousness, your own brokenness, your denouncement of self-righteousness? humility does it does it reflect that or does it reflect something else and let me ask a tougher question so many of us have grown up in a system that says we just add jesus to our life and we're okay that somehow god is up here saying please accept me (laughs) i'm god i made you but please accept me And do you know the question, if you really look at your own sin and your own depravity compared to his holiness, do you know the question that you're left with? God, please accept me. I don't know why you would accept me. And the only way you'd accept me is because of Jesus Christ. God, please accept me. Because in my own sin, I got nothing. And you know the person that comes to that point is ready to receive the gift of salvation. Let me ask you this tough question. <laughs> Have you ever been a, to a point where you've been broken over your sin to the point where all you could do is cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner? Have you ever been there? I've known people who say they've been a Christian for years, and all it's been is, I guess, you know, I believe that Jesus is God, and he died on the cross, and he saved me from my sins. What about you? <laughs> Have you ever been broken over your sin? No. Have you ever seen yourself in light of God's holiness? No. But I guess I love Jesus. Have you ever been broken over your sin to the point where you cried out for mercy? And if you have, does that still constitute your prayer today? Because it should. I want to read two verses, and then I'm going to have a stand and repeat these verses together. Psalm fifty-one, sixteen and 17 says this, for you, God, for you, God, will not delight in sacrifice. <laughs> you don't want my, you don't want my sacrifices, or I would give it. That's what David says after he sinned with Bathsheba. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. All my works that I give you, you're not pleased with those. Here's what you want. The sacrifices are of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Wayne, could you put that on the board and would you stand with me? And I'd like to say this verse, these verses together. It's a, it's a lot. I'm going to have to look on this because my eyes are bad. Repeat this together. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that that would be the, the prayer of all our hearts, that we'd recognize our own sin and not wallow in that sin but but understand the grace that's been given to us, understand the mercy that's been given to us so that we could know Christ's righteousness so that we could lift our eyes and look people in the eye and look up to heaven and praise you. Lord, I pray that you'd break us of our self-righteous living and actually I pray that you'd break me of my self-trust, my self-righteousness, and my pride. We love you and thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.